Welcome to Bark's Podcasts. Each week, Nikki Tudge interviews special guests in our PPG member-only Facebook group. And some of those interviews we feel are absolutely crucial and need to be communicated to a wider audience. So we pop them onto the Bark's Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome everybody. This is Nikki Tudge. Just give me a second. I'm just going to make sure that I've got Laurie in the screen too. Oh, there, oh, there you, you go. go. There I am. There you are. Hi. All right. Welcome everybody. We're broadcasting live in the PPG member group and I have a wonderful guest here today. I have Laurie Williams, who is a long-term PPG member. She is also a professional certified dog trainer, and I'm not going to mention the name of your business because I'm going to come back to that because I, I, was <laughs> I was fascinated with the name until I first spoke to her and understood where that came from. Laurie is also an author, and you are you have bravely stepped up to chair PPG, and I, let me see if I can pronounce this without stuttering, the inclusivity, yay! Inclusivity. <laughs> So we are here today to talk about how to increase diversity in the dog world. So welcome, Laurie. Hi, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I have to tell you, I actually washed my hair and put some makeup on today because every time you and I meet, you always look really put together. Right? <laughs> I feel like I didn't even drag you in front of a book. <laughs> I thought, I was like, well, she's got her hair down. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, well, to be honest with you, um, I'm, I've been I've not had my hair cut since January because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Oh I, yeah. Every week I weigh up. Should I go? And my husband's like, "Why? Why take the risk?" <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. So at some at some point, I probably will. So I have to ask you because I ask all our guests that come on here, what are the three things that you most commonly have on your desk, and why? Are they fun things? Are they pictures? Most people go, well, I've got a clicker because they've got a clicker somewhere. <laughs> I have several clickers on my desk at all times. Uh, I also have, well, um, also I have a calendar. I have um, a desk to, to write. I post-it notes okay. uh, to write messages. Right. But, you, you know, I got to be honest, I don't sit at a desk all that much. Right. <laughs> Um, but what I am, I, I have my pens and paper to write with and always my my cell phone right there. So, but I, you know, seeing as how I spend about not even 5% of my day at a desk, yeah. I don't have a lot. A lot of stuff is on me, like in pockets yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always find that. And obviously I'm one of those people like most, most dog trainers. And my husband, and my husband actually does a lot of our laundry. And he just gets really frustrated because my laundry is always full of clickers or <laughs> or treats in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he also says that he just makes some money out of my laundry because he, he thinks I have zero respect for money because I just leave money in my pocket. I'm not talking about a lot of money. I'm just talking quarters, dollars. Right, right. The dollar bills. Yeah. So he'll tell me that this week he made four bucks on doing the laundry because he managed to steal it out of my, <laughs> out of my clothes. So he thinks it's worth it. So, okay. So... <laughs> Nothing in particular, because we had one guest on here, Dr. Eduardo Fernandez, who has a plastic penguin on his desk for some reason. He said it's always on his desk. He's not sure yeah. why it's on his desk. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so Laurie, start, let, let's start off by sort of, let, let's learn a little bit about you. 
because okay. I mean I, I do know you a little bit because you and I have had some contact over the last few weeks and you've obviously been a member of PPG for a long time and I've done, done some research and um, so let's get everybody up to speed in terms of you so you've been in dog training for many many years yeah, and what, what, what I'm using your article that was in the whole dog journal I'm actually okay. using using that as our roadmap today because I think you make some really good points in here and I think they're well worth exploring so talk to me pre-dog training because I think you have a really intriguing background let's see let me go way back so yeah. pre-dog training um you know I always love dogs always my Mother says when I was in the stroller and she would take me out because we know we didn't have dogs when I was a young child. Right. She said when even from like a toddler, I'd be in my stroller and if there was a dog around, I'd be fixated on the dog. Yeah. Um, so she says even from the very, very beginning, uh, I was that person that everywhere I went, parks, wherever, if there was a dog, I, I gravitated toward the dog. I just always felt this kinship with dogs, even though, like I said, I never had one. I didn't have my own dog till I was 14. Um, I got my own rescue dog. My uncle gave her to me. Her name was Mamie. And I would teach her tricks. And we spent a lot of time uh, the summer leading to um, me starting high school together. And uh, she was my best friend. <laughs> she was my best friend that summer. Uh, there was a, I lived in a neighborhood where, uh, a lot of other kids. I went to a different school. Um, I went to a school for gifted children. So I didn't go to school with the um, neighborhood children. So I, you know, a lot of times I was by myself and um, my dog, Mamie, she and I, so I taught her a lot of tricks. We won some 4-H pet shows together. Uh, so yeah, I just, I just was so connected to dog from that point. 4-H, is that like the Young Farmers Association? Is that sort of... It is. It's, um, yes, here, um, it's, um, they do, yes, mostly farm showing, but then they have pet shows, dog, dog, little dog shows, and yeah, and they're still, they're still in existence, and that, that this was back uh, 50 years ago. Um, well, not that, I just made myself really old, let's say 40, 40 years ago. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, so... I got my first dog when I was when I was thirty, so fourteen is. Oh wow! Dead. Yeah, I mean, I, my my brother was a serious asthmatic, so growing up we couldn't have. Oh uh, okay. And you know, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I'm convinced that an affinity towards pets is in our DNA. I think genetically. I do too. Because everybody, Absolutely. everybody in my house growing up loved animals, absolutely loved them. But we never had them. But we, my, we would, we would be taken on farming holidays to feed baby lambs, and my dad just loved animals. My mother loved animals, but we couldn't have mm -hmm. them. And yet, other people I know just have absolutely zero interest in animals at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from my perspective, I don't think it was social conditioning. We weren't being conditioned to like animals because we didn't have them in the house. Um, so where did you get your love of animals from? Yeah, it definitely was not social conditioning, nor does it run in my family. Um, yeah. yeah, not at all. I, I was the odd one for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still am. <laughs> still am. I have relatives to this day that like when they come to my house, you're going to have those dogs out. I mean, it, that, it, you know, there's just... I, you know, different environment growing up, different culture, what, whatever, um, for whatever reason. I was the odd one for sure. Right. And that's one of the, um, one of the actual topics in your article, wasn't it? Right. Was it 
relationship. And we're going to get to that because I think that's really important. Okay. But you didn't become a dog trainer until it was sort of a second or third career for you, wasn't it? I mean, you've done other things. Well, sort of. So I got into dog training when I was a, a, quite a young woman. I was newly married, quite a young woman. My son was um, a toddler. Um, just dabbling it, not as a professional. Um, right. I joined a, a, a local kennel club and uh, just was hooked from the minute I walked in there. I, I, the things I saw them doing with their dogs, right. the performing, I was like, I got to do that. So I was in it in that way, um, yeah. but, you know, as an amateur. Um, so, uh, but when we moved, maybe when we moved to Virginia from North Carolina, my husband was in the Marine Corps. I started teaching classes like in my backyard. I taught for the, um, the Marine Corps base, um, just little things. And I did get paid for it. So I guess you could say I was a professional dog trainer. I hadn't right. done any studying in it or anything like that at that point. Um, so I dabbled. I dabbled. Yeah. Which a lot of people, that's how a lot of people got. After doing other professional careers, I, ca I finally came to the conclusion, you know what? Do You know, everybody says do. Yeah money at so um that's when i decided to go full speed ahead into the dog training profession and that's been for been doing that now pretty exclusively for about the last 17 years yeah. now your business pop and iron that, that, that which I, is just a name i love especially when i know a little bit more. <laughs> your your business originally was named something differently wasn't it didn't you rename it because of your love of keeping fit or weights or or was it well, no, actually, Pup and Iron was the name from the start. Um, I when I opened up the actual facility, because I did, I was a fitness professional. I was a personal trainer, aerobics instructor, all that good stuff. And back in the '90s, and I used to joke about it. I said, "I'm going to open a dog gym, and I'm going to call it Pup and Iron," and everybody would laugh, and we got a big kick out of that. And of course, this seemed like there's no way I'm going to really do that. Well, I did it. <laughs> I, when I decided, I said, you know what? That's what I want. Because it's really more than a, um, a dog training facility. My, I wanted it to be like for fitness, fun, games, like a one-stop place where people could do all kinds of activities with their dogs. So the gym element fit. It's, it's huge, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like, yeah. yeah. I, I was looking at some photographs a few a few days ago. And um, we should, you know, I, I, we should look at doing some events up there for PPG because it's massive. <laughs> you could run a whole conference in that place. It's absolutely huge. Um, <laughs> on your website, you call it the Enrichment Center. So I suppose that's right. what it everything that you do, doesn't it? With Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I'm kind of, we are kind of reinventing ourselves a little bit. Since post pandemic, I'd say, yeah. and also post a lot of just um, things that are happening in the the dog world in general. It's like when I opened it, it I, the original name was Pup and Iron Canine Fitness and Learning Center. Okay, this was before Fit Paws, before all these certifications to for that people are getting now with exercise. I that was like fifteen years before all that. Right. Um, so now that's pretty much out there. A lot of people are doing that. So I kind of started to dial it back to the original. Like, really, what am I trying to do with dogs? Right. I want to enrich their lives. So I said enrichment center is more of what we are now. Right. Um, and it's something that I still feel a lot of training places are kind of missing the boat, yeah. at least in my area. 
So yeah, so it, that's um, I, I definitely want to go more with that name right. now than the fitness one, um, and the sports and fitness one. We did that, so yeah. now let's dial it back to the original idea, which was you know to enrich the lives of dogs and their humans, Absolutely. and bring and build the relationship. So. Absolutely. So you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about today a little bit later is mm -hmm. diversity in the dog world. So let's kind of retrace your steps because obviously you've been hugely successful. You've got your own facility, you write for magazines. I mean, you're going to be a presenter at Geek Week, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. So what was your pathway? How did you, you know, who supported you? How were you mentored? Who were the people that you felt were really sort of the pillars to you being able to comfortably launch into the industry? So, so if we were to sort of say, how can we replicate that? How can we support other people? You know, because one of the things that I've noticed with me, with you, with many of us, most of us have come to this as a second career because we've done something, right, right. something else and we've thought, well, I really want to channel myself into dogs. We don't, as an industry, do a really good job of attracting people from school or post-college. We, we, we mm -hmm. we, I don't think we have that sort of branding and level of professionalism and there certainly isn't any sort of standard operating procedures or industry oversight. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're not attracting young people. I mean, I know when I think about how much I love pets, as a, as a young woman wanting to look at career opportunities, training animals would not have even been on the radar. because. Right. Right. Been. So, let, so let's talk about how you got into it and how can we better attract the next yeah. generation into our industry so that we are more diverse? Right. You know, um, as far as what, help I had, I have a great support system. Right. Number one, like my, my husband, yeah. <laughs> bless his heart, because <laughs> I just get these wild ideas and, <laughs> and he goes with it. He's always <laughs> just gone with it. I'm going to open a dog training facility. Yeah, I, have I mean, <laughs> so he just goes with it. He's, he's right. very supportive. Um, my like a really very strong support team so that's first of what i had which has nothing to do with the industry luckily i just had that yeah. you know i find i i for myself i'm very self-motivated i'm the, the type i'm a go-getter type i'm right. very ambitious i got that from my mother extremely so so i didn't need any hand holding um hand holding i didn't need any doors open for me i I am programmed to bust through doors. That's what I do. I've done it with with everything. Every every those little side careers that I've had, um, I've paved my way. I was like, okay, I couldn't just be like one of that. I had to be the next thing and keep going up and up. So um, dog training was similar to that. I um, when I first start when I first got into it. I remember taking my very first, I believe my very, 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 very first seminar I ever took might have been a Pat Miller seminar. And I remember, see, this is me. So let me describe myself. I was sitting at that seminar and I was like, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's just me. No, I, no. I can do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done stand-up comedy because I love stand-up comedy. And I would sit there and go, I could do that. So I decided to, let me go take 
take a course and do some stand-up. But anyway, I I always was striving for that. And like really nobody opened any door, nobody welcomed me in. Now I did in the article I did mention um initially when I took that first um dog obedience class um way back in 1983 or whatever. Those ladies who were part of the kennel club did, they did extend their hand to me. And I will always be grateful to them for that. Um, They did. They pulled me in. They saw I had the, had it. (laughs) They saw whatever they saw. I had the time, whatever they saw. They were like, you could do this. So they did do that. But really, bringing it up to, um, you know, once I started really getting into it as a profession, I, I just had to bust. I had to bust my own way. So, my my answer when people say things like that, well, you know, Laurie did it, and I do. I get that a lot. Well, you did it, so why does anybody else need help? Or blah blah blah. Because you you really, I don't really compare other people to me because I am. I'm. I'm I don't want to say I'm exceptional. I mostly say I'm crazy. I, you know, I won't say because I will. I will just like I'm just going for it. Whatever I'm doing it. And it's not. Not everybody has that, nor should they. Absolutely. And it's not for me. It's not about the potential because a lot of people have huge amounts of potential. It's having the confidence to push through with that potential, and you know, right. And you're talking about yourself, and that resonates with me because it might throughout my entire life, if I wanted to do something. I just figure out a way to go do it. And my husband says I often do all the right. thing, but learn on the way in a quick fashion. Um, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of other a lot of other people that we want and need in our industry that we want to nurture. Yes, yeah. But they don't have, and they've got so much yeah. potential, but they don't right. have moves of confidence or that support system to sort of help ignite that and get that moving. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I had a lot of things, you know, going for me. I had... You know, I had a supportive husband I, he, who had a good job. Yeah. You know, I had, like I said, I went to seminars. I could go to seminars. Yeah. I had the, you know, this, the disposable income to be able to put toward that. You know, yeah. opening up my own business. I had the resources and the finances yeah. to be able to pull that together. You know, yeah. so not every, you know, not everybody has that. And I don't want people to think, I, I hate that mentality that, well, you know, this person was able to do it and that person was able to do it. And this person was able to, so everybody should be able to do it. No, we still should. We, we still have a responsibility to help those that may not have the advantages that some of us have. So. Yeah, absolutely. And those advantages could be color. They could be, uh, you know, whether you're male or female, it could have access to credit because all those types of right significantly impact whether somebody's going to be able to yeah. use that absolutely uh, you know? yep 100 percent. yeah okay and um, talk to me because one of the things in your article which did not surprise me and it didn't um that wasn't really a huge eye-opener and um, I, I and i'm going to sort of spend a couple of minutes and talk about me right now because i was very mm-hmm. very i was very fortunate that my husband, I met my husband in Nigeria. He was with the Department of State and he was transferred down to South Africa to work at the embassy in Pretoria. And it was the year that Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were massively padding the embassy to prepare for all the social changes that were about to take place. And I couldn't go with him initially because my were, I had a contract, but as soon as I could get there, I got there. Um, and I spent three years there and was 
very fortunate to have lived through that transition because mm. it was an incredible time to be there. Um, but, but I know from living there for those three years, and this is what resonated for me when you mentioned this in your article, that the fraught relations between dogs and African-Americans, because I saw that firsthand in South Africa with how the police and the army use dogs as basically sort of racial weapons. So, but it never, it never occurred to me that that was part of the sort of cultural history of the US. And what's more, oh my gosh. Didn't yeah, also, it didn't also occur to me how that would still resonate now. Sure. So, you, you know, okay, I get that. So let's talk about that because that, that is obviously, you know, talk to me about, do you think that, and I don't know this, maybe you know the stats, is the pet owning population in, in the black community, is it less than in the white community? Do you, do you think that still plays out? Um, well, so, so let it like this. This is what people don't understand. When you, if you were to Google mm -hmm. um, the civil rights movement right. in the mid 60s, yeah. early 60s to mid 60s, <clears throat> I was born in 1962. My mother mm -hmm. lived in Jim Crow South. Right when she was a young woman. My, mo my mother had to drink from different water fountains couldn't use different restrooms. So when people say, oh, that was so long ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. Right. It was the 1965s is, is when the most of the civil, well, that's when the Civil Rights Act, but leading up to that, that's when a lot of the peaceful protests, right. uh, you know, what's going on now, you, you know, <laughs> when they had the peaceful protests back, back then, they were peaceful and yet they still, sent the attack dogs out to get them. Yeah. Hose them down with water hose. That was yeah. like I said, in my lifetime. So people have to stop saying how long ago it was because it wasn't that long ago. Exactly. So certainly that still resonates. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. I, I would be, go ahead. A very dear friend of mine called Gerald Wallet, who I lived um very close friend of mine, I spent three years with him in Nigeria, was from Louisiana. And he's about nine years older than me and we spent many an evening with a good glass of red wine talking about how he was raised in the u.s and to sit across the table from somebody that was not able to go into restaurants and share bathrooms that is when you realize that this is not a situation that happened that long ago no it's not no, it's, it's not not and yeah. and and yes the residuals are still very 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 present present and yeah. i mean as long if people want to keep trying to deny it, you know, I, I, I we're never gonna get anywhere because people have to recognize that the wounds are still very deep. Um, because even so, I was I lived I was a very 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 young child baby and you know all that, but still, you know what my parents went through, what their parents went through, you know that gets passed on to your your offspring. Absolutely. It, it, it's just the way, that's just the way things work. Are, are, and you, so, are you familiar with Jeffrey Robinson, who's the, de de the deputy legal director of um, the Center for Justice? Because he has, and I think this should be prerequisite watching for anybody. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a one hour, 26 minute YouTube video about the, um, the history of civil rights. 
mm. and, and how, and I mean, I've always recognized the civil rights issues, but when you go and watch that, you realize it's factually, factually presented by a lawyer. It's factually mm. accurate. It's all been factually tested. And when you watch that, you realize how unlevel the playing field oh, yeah. is and still is. Right. And, and, I, and I, I mean, I'll post the link in the, um, in the description of this afterwards, because I do, I urge everyone to go and watch it. Right. Because it's really, really, really super powerful. And it just literally smacks all these myths on the head regarding mm -hmm. flags and monuments and laws and, you know, all that kind of stuff that people sort of still are in a little bit denial of. So, and, and I, I, let's let's kind of get back into our industry. And the reason I say that, mm -hmm. I mean, you and I could talk about civil rights for hours. I, I'm always, <laughs> I, know, I mean, I, 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 love, um, I love talking to you about it because I think, I think for us to really understand, we have to talk and we have to listen. Right, and, sure. And that's just really, really important. But I, I think for sort of all, all intents and purposes, what I want to really understand is how we can make PPG a better, more inclusive organization. Um, so what I would like to know from your perspective as a child growing up and having a dog from age 14, but none of your family had dogs, um, does the lack of diversity in our industry, does it stem from perhaps that less black Americans, blacks have pets, period? Or is that not, or is that just not accurate? You know, there is less. Right. Um, I don't think it's, uh, I mean, but there are a lot that do. Right. Um, and certainly there is interest there. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that I think there's an assumption right. that they, they don't. Like, for instance, if I, you know, were to just go somewhere talking about my dogs and this and that, the other, there'll be assumptions about what breed I even have. You know, there's just like there's they only think that African-Americans are going to have certain breeds. Right. It's just ridiculous, really. Yeah. But anyway, um, but so, yeah. They're dog owners. Six. I think that there's some in the um, article, I believe, um, that were looked up and added um, to it. But um, it is less. Absolutely, it's less. Um, but then you figure pet ownership in general is often a something that is more of a privilege mm -hmm. for people to have and, and take care of and the extra money yeah. to be able to take right. care of properly. So, you know, depending on, um, there's probably a lot of demographics if you were to break it out, different communities and cultures and stuff that may have less. So I don't think that African-Americans per se is super, super unique. There right. is, yes, that historical, Thing that we were just touching on a little bit that's in there, but I don't know necessarily that that we should assume that um, African Americans aren't interested in pets. So I'm just saying all this to say yeah, yeah. I know that there's a lot of. Um, so, for instance, we do a lot of um, outreach, like if there's you know like pet expos, pet fairs, or even just. Um, cultural family fairs here and that, you know, little things that they'll take, sometimes they'll take a bunch of therapy dogs to whatever. And I was just like scratching my head and thinking of all the different like African-American festivals I've gone to um, here and there throughout life. I've never seen any dogs there. I've never seen any. I mean, it's just like, that is like, it's an assumption that we do not yeah. care. We do not want to see. I know for a fact, 
that their little African-American children would marvel at dogs like putting on a a trick show or an agility show, just like little white children. They would, they would, their faces would light up. But when is that ever done? When is that ever presented to them? Probably hardly ever, probably hardly ever. Or um, so, you know, I was just thinking about that. Those are also ways you'd start with the children and involve them because we do, we do things with um, kids. I know that what's the um, child prevention, uh, uh, bite prevention week, they they do things with children. I was like, would they ever go to an inner city school or a school that was, um, you know, had a larger demographic of African-American children or just more diverse? Would they even think to go there? Probably not. So we have to start thinking and thinking of if you want to include people, then yes, you have to reach out. That's the way it works. We do it. We do that on a a normal basis. Like I said, we go out, we put up tables at these different fairs and things with brochures and talk to people. But when have we ever tried to do that in a more diverse event? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we had a meeting um, just for the audience. We had a meeting a few days ago about um, the PPG inclusivity. Um, I got it right a second time. Um, when I was a child, I had a, a slight stutter, and I used to stutter over S's. So when I say inclusivity, I have to really, and that's why I'm going to refer to it as the Ink Committee. There um, you go. Yeah, we were talking about, and I think one of the things, one of the great tools that we have at PPG is our junior membership that many people don't know about. And um, and I was mentioning to you guys that um, Sandy Machado down in Miami has done a really good job with it and um, introducing children into. And it's not just about dog training, but it's about the level of responsibility of caring for dogs, isn't it, and pets? Oh, yeah, yeah. Bring them into your home, what that means in terms of medical care. And, and yeah, I mean, pets are expensive, my goodness. Right. Um, I don't know if this is an accurate number, but I read somewhere that it's something like $1,700 a year just for the basic veterinary care. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a significant chunk of change. It is. People. It really is. So, yeah. Um, so what would you like to see in the industry? I mean, if you could sort of wave a magic wand, which you can't do, obviously, but I think we need to start creating, having this dialogue and talking about how we can attract and more I mean our population when you and I were talking about this earlier the population is extremely diverse and it's becoming more diverse as mm-hmm. um, as, the, as the eras grow so it would make sense that any industry truly represents its target market so mm-hmm. you know, just because it's a it's a subsection of the population so how can we attract a more diverse professional dog trainer how can we encourage more people to join our industry and whether it's on the onset or whether it's a second career or does that mean that we need to talk about sort of long-term programs to reach into different communities to make people aware that there is this tremendous career that people can embark on i mean i don't think very many career officers at high schools are talking to high school potential graduates about dog training as a career no no no. they're not and and you know just as we mentioned before dog training very often is something that you fall into later in life. I I mean, again, I I don't know what the demographics are. I just know, but what I see with my own eyes, that it tends to be um, overwhelmingly female and overwhelmingly females like 30 plus. 
Yeah. Um, you know, but there, you know, as far as for young, yes, you got to reach out to the children. Why not? You know, I, I, it's funny. I did do throughout my career, I have been invited to some high schools here right. and there right. to, um, for career day. I've, you know, not every year, but throughout the years, there's been, you know, more than a couple of times, you know, maybe that's something that we could, instead of sitting back and waiting for yeah. the high school to invite us, yeah. how about we send something to the high schools and say, hey, we are available yeah. for this, um, yeah. which would be, you know, that would be something that we, we don't normally do. Because like, like I'm even including myself, because I usually have just waited and then someone has asked me, I, I could have reached out first and said, hey, can I come yeah. to the school and when next time you have a career day and, and blah, blah, blah. I think that's a really important suggestion because in our meeting this week, we had spoken about sh some short-term things we can do, right. like encouraging junior memberships, making more scholarships available, um, sponsoring credentialing, you know, um, encouraging new members. And they're great short-term programs that we can sort of do fairly quickly. But I think, I mean, how fabulous would it be if we could put together a really professional sort of career program package about our industry? Oh, yeah. right. and that we and we can use that to go into um, schools and neighborhoods and career type conversations. Right, right. To try to encourage people into the industry. So I think that could be, because we'd spoken about the potential for not just short-term programs, but also looking at more strategic right. programs. So maybe that's one of the sort of long-term programs that we need to speak of. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your article is about increasing visibility of, of black trainers. What do you mean by increasing visibility? Do you mean sort of enabling um, platforms through presenter opportunities, sponsor spotlights, focus on, you know, sort of focusing on individual trainers that are doing well? Is well, you so, yeah, uh, yes. Um, yeah. Because, you know, when you see someone who looks like you yeah. sitting at the table yeah. or in a capacity of um, and not even someone that's one of the ones making decisions. Yes, that. Yeah. But when you see that really opens a door. Right. I know, like I, I did mention, and it has happened many a times, I have been the only Afri African-American at so many dog related events. I, I couldn't even count over the years. And then sometimes I'll see a uh, one or two, and then even that one or two, it's like, oh, good, and that's, that's what we do. And right. when I and you know what's funny is because I, I mentioned it one time to one of my um, um, companions friends that was with me. I said, oh wow, there's another black person here, and they're like, she, she was like, why do you do that? Why do you always count? I said, have you ever been the only anywhere? I have, yeah. If if you have. You yeah. would know why I do that. Like yeah. that, I was like, that isn't even, that's not even a valid question to me <laughs> because you have to put yourself in the pers in the um, perspective of you being the only. Yeah. And and most, most white people have not. Um, yeah. uh, you lived in Nigeria, so obviously. Um, but most white people have not been the only like ever. Yeah. So, um, so absolutely, yes. When I walk in somewhere, yeah. There's I, and I see someone else. It is a little bit of joy. So yes, it's, that's the visibility that I met. It's fascinating that you mentioned that because I was at, I actually had that in my notes to talk to you about that. And 
because I, and actually for me where it resonated most is I, my first job overseas was in the Caribbean, was in Barbados. And then I was very fortunate that my company transferred me to Egypt. So I spent four years in Cairo. And I can remember in Cairo, the first time um, my head office sent over an accounts person and he was from London. So he wasn't just English and white, but it was from London. And when he walked in through the hotel front door, it was like, oh, because <laughs> so long. Well, first of all, he spoke English and I'd had to sort of work through translators for the first few weeks I was there. Right. Um, and secondly, he looked like me. And, and, it, and it, you are very aware and you're also very aware of a vulnerability when you're the only person. Yeah, there's, there's that because there's, yeah, there's that. It's very strange because even though there isn't, and, and you know, you might feel differently, but even though there isn't a physical perceived threat, <laughs> there's not a physical perceived threat, there is still a level of threat because you don't feel that, it's really weird. It's a, it's a well, very strange situation. Absolutely, but I, I am gonna go ahead and, and interject here and say, for black people, there is always a perceived yeah physical yeah. threat. I don't yeah. care where you are. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, and I know it's not just me, my husband and I talk, there's places we don't go. There's places I will not go alone. I won't go without him to this day. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I, I'm as a dog show judge, I've had to go to like small towns and, and, you know, to judge and, you know, it's just me. And like I said, I see no one who looks like me mm -hmm. and yeah. Okay, it's that's way I know women feel that way a lot of times anyway as a woman. Right. Um, so then I I had the double um, vulnerability of being a woman and then also being an African American in a sea of people that nobody looked like me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Might have happened to have been a, a area that was peppered with a few Confederate flags on vehicles and stuff like that. Doesn't make you feel comfortable. It makes you feel very vulnerable. So yes, seeing someone who looks like me is was always a comfort. And so when I go to like a dog show now, like I want it has to be one of those really big shows, like you know the big confirmation. You know, not as big to the magnitude of Westminster, but whatever. And then yeah. I do. I see more black handlers, and you know, more you know, more persons of color all over, um, grooming the dogs all over. And um, it, it's it's better now. But yeah. you know, twenty some years ago, thirty years ago, when I first started, there was not. It was none, and it was it was hard. And it, even still, I can. It's not too many that you can't count. So yeah. we still haven't got there. We haven't even nearly gotten there, yeah. but it's better. Um, I will say that it is better. Yeah, you know it's interesting. But when I, when I first moved to Barbados, um, I I struggled there um, because the, the Beijers didn't want me there because I was in uh, I've been sent from my head office. The woman, that I, the woman that I was consulting with, who to this day, 30 years later, is a really dear close friend of mine, Joan, and um, she made it quite obvious that she felt there was absolutely no need for me to be there and she wasn't going to make my job any. <laughs> and I remember on about day five, I remember going back to my apartment and I called my father and I burst into tears and my dad said, what's wrong? I said, they don't want me here. And they, they were also, mm -hmm. they also called me white girl. And they, mm -hmm. actually, they actually sang a Tina Turner song, but substituted white girl into the song. Which, <laughs> 
which was funny because when I left the hotel, they used that in celebration because then we'd become sort of um, very close friends. And my father said to me, he goes, it's really sad, it's really sad, Nick, and I'm really, I feel really sad that you're going through that. But hundreds and thousands of people yeah. feel like that each and every day and they can't escape. Right, right, you know? right. And I, and I remember right. thinking, oh, my God. So, and I don't think people realize um, how difficult it can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, there's, a, there's a thing I saw on Facebook a few days ago and I printed it off because it just really resonated for me, but it resonates sort of a, it says, no matter how open-minded, socially conscious, anti-racist I think I am, I still have old learned hidden biases that I need to examine. It is my responsibility to check myself daily for my stereotypes, prejudices, and ultimate discrimination. And I think, you know, for me, the the most troublesome are the people that just don't see that don't see in themselves that all of us, yeah. all of us, are conditioned with some type of bias, discrimination. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. whether it's because we're English, because we're white, because we're black, because we're Democrats, Republicans, women, male, we all are. And I think unless we all make a concerted effort to be socially conscious of that and to, I mean, ultimately, isn't it sometimes just having some empathy, just putting yourself in somebody else's situation? Yeah, it's that. It's, that. it's also keeping fairness yeah. in mind. And it's really the old golden rule. Yeah. Do on to which others. really which says it all really yeah. it transcends pretty much everything else right. politics religion yeah. whatever yeah. do unto others as you would have them do unto you period exactly. if you stick by that there wouldn't you you would be fair because right. you want people to be fair to you right. so um but people yeah we have a lot of um you know cult, we're culturally culturally conditioned I, I will say this that you know there right now racism is like front and center and as well it should be that we focus on this. Yeah. Um, so I do hear a lot of um, my um, white friends saying things like you know all white people are racist and I don't believe that I don't believe all white people are racist. Mm-hmm. Like you just said, I do believe all people and that includes all. Um, at uh, races and uh, are culturally conditioned. Now, yeah. I, now, unfortunately, the um, the cultural conditioning that a lot of white people do have, unfortunately, manifests in yeah. ways yeah. that will affect other people. Like, right. um, I, you know, I might be culturally conditioned. Not might be. I am culturally conditioned for sure on yeah. certain things, but. You know, a lot of people, if you're not in a position of any type of power in this world, if you're not, um, then you're you're thinking your even your prejudices and biases really don't affect anyone else because you can't make their life any better or worse. You don't have the power to do that. That's where the little that's where the disparity comes in, because um, just your thinking, like, for instance, uh, just a a real quick um, analogy, if you were. Um, a uh, manager at an apartment building and some uh, people of a race race that you weren't familiar with or you had some preconceived notions came in to rent an apartment, that cultural conditioning that you have, you might start thinking, oh, but they might do this, 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 and this, and this. And then then you have another couple that, and then so you give the apartment to that other couple. Does that mean you were racist? Not really you weren't even thinking about it you weren't like say, trying to do something um consciously but because you had that cultural conditioning in you you were you know making up all these things 
So and, and, anyway. And that's, and that's exactly, I mean, like you mentioned earlier, people think that if you're a black American, you're going to have a certain type of dog. People think that if you're Hispanic, you might have a certain type of dog. People think that right. if you're a, a white woman of 40 plus living in this neighborhood, you might have this type of dog. And, you know, we don't necessarily maliciously think that, but it still shows a bias and a, right. a cultural conditioning that I think right. we to start becoming a bit more aware of yeah yeah so, we have to commit to being aware if we, we have to we have to commit to being aware of it and we have to constantly like you said like check ourselves yeah and rise above it yeah and you know i do it for myself too because um you know i'm in a place right now where um if i meet a white person like say in their 60s mm-hmm. that age group mm-hmm. I might like be thinking to myself, they might be a supporter of you know who. Yeah. It goes in my mind. Yeah. And enough time. And then I sometimes have to say, I shouldn't, like, they may not be. You don't know that they are. Right. Right. Give them a chance. Yeah. So I tell, I have to mentally self talk yeah. and go and get through that because I am, that's something that I'm dealing with right now a lot. It's when I meet people um, that I, I've noticed about myself, I'm like, okay. Like I'm a little bit standoffish because like you might be, you might support him. So yeah. I can't, I can't really get to know you. I don't, you know. Or you might already have these conclusions about me or these thoughts and biases about me, which will not allow your filter system right. to truly experience me as the fabulous person that I am. I mean, right. you know, um, yeah, it's a, uh, it is, and it's a monumental task because it means we've all got to question our own inner sort of sanctum mm-hmm. of mm-hmm feel about things right right you know i mean we all have to do that um so let's talk about the industry over the last few months because it because this is such a prominent social issue right now it's mm-hmm. on it's obviously creating a lot of dialogue in our industry and i know there's some facebook groups where people are sort of really comfortable to have conversations what are you hearing out there in the industry in terms of our industry oh, wow yeah i've uh, there's like really two very and you know what our industry does mirror society so i mean it, it so there's there definitely is that line yeah. down the middle there are some people who are completely annoyed like of even having to talk about this yeah. my um there were comments made on my article um on the whole dog journal website um a lot of comments overwhelmingly very positive ones but there were some right. that were wow they were like, why are we talking about it? So we got to read about this and and hold our journal too. Da, 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 da. I mean, yeah, just very resentful. They're they they're over it. They're telling they're saying everybody else should get over it. Yeah, that's there. I hear it. I hear it. It's it's unfortunately it's um mirroring our society right now. So this is where organizations mm-hmm. need to take a stand. Like my first thing. Um, that I was saying that we, I think a lot of persons of color are going to be looking to hear what statements certain organizations have made. Have you made a public statement that shows where you stand? Because you can't ride the fence. Yeah. Things are too, they're too polarized. Yeah. And you can't be down the middle and say, well, you can't say find people on both sides. You can't do that. You have to say one way or the other. Are you for diversity? Are you for inclusivity? 
or are you not? Well, and you and I had this conversation a few, a couple of months ago now, because one of the things for me is that, I mean, let's, irrespective of your own ethics or, or your compass or your own moral sort of fortitude, this is the law of the land, for goodness sake. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean as organizations, as employers, as colleagues, as the, the workplace, the professional environment has got to be an environment that everybody feels included, they feel safe, they feel free from hostility, they feel able to sort of self-expression. I mean, mm. that's just the way that the professional business world, I mean, right. should be. Absolutely. It's supposed to be, right. It's yeah. supposed to be. But too many, a lot of, uh, like even companies, um, different corporations, they're coming out, they're making, they're making it known. Are you, which, which, what are you on? It, it, and it is sides. Uh, of, yeah. of course, I feel fairness yeah. is the right side. There is yeah. a right and wrong fairness and being on the right side of history. That's the side that most corporations should want to be on. But right. some of them struggle. They struggle with uh, they don't want to alienate the other side. They don't want to, you know, um, depending on what type of product they make or whatever, um, they don't want to. But then there's some that are like, no, we're on the right side of history, period, point blank. And if you don't like that, then maybe you don't need our product. Yeah. We're fine with that. They have to believe that enough people want to be right, that they will still thrive and they will still be able to be financially, you know, what, you know, they are for profit businesses. I get it. Um, it it's just like for me with my business, I, it's kind of, I don't have to put up a sign necessarily because I'm a walking sign. I always say that I have it a little bit easier um, that like that. But if, if people don't know where I stand, well, first of all, most people, if they, all they have to do is go to my, my Facebook page and they know where I stand. <laughs> Very clear about it. But anyway, um, I don't want your business if that bothers you. If yeah. if the way if what I believe in bothers you, if my rights um, bother you, then I don't need to have your money. That's that's okay. Yeah. I have to believe that there are. So I applaud the 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 organizations and companies that are are taking a stand, and that's what I think all the um, in our industry people are going to be looking now. Yeah. Uh, to see what industries not only are saying what statements they're putting out, but also what changes are made, what 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 um, differences they see, what whatever. So, and and uh, you know, and, and I and I will say this because when this first when this sort of social issue first became prominent, and it it was sort of really like okay, the focus is it's in the right place now. We need to sort of leverage this. We were hesitant to put out a statement because words can be really cheap. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And and I, I, you know, I and I said this to you at the time that for me, what's what's more important is not what we say; it's what we do. And it's not what we do last month, this month. It's what we do in terms of ultimately trying to change the the, the long term right. future. Um, and and any sort of larger organization or industry is I sort of liken it's sort of a big ship and you can't you can put as much pressure on the rudder as you want but it's only going to turn at a certain speed and what's mm -hmm. important is that, that pressure is continually applied so that that ship continues to move and it's not just a well we gave up because we didn't get the movement we wanted straight off the bat um, and you know and it, I go back to the conversation we had last week is that We've got to look at what can we do short term, what can we do midterm, and what can we impact long term. Right. How can we, I mean, PPG was developed 
to create a platform for all positive reinforcement based dog trainers to make to bring them all together to make it easy for us to move our industry in terms of philosophy in terms of equipment so um and so now we need to also look at that and sort of from a social issue perspective and say we need to do that fully inclusive you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're not going to include people that want to use a shot collar because that's not what we're about but mm -hmm. we we also don't want to create a business environment where we exclude people because they feel they're not welcome or right. they feel that the leadership doesn't maybe think this is front and central. Um, right, right. But, but ultimately, like with any sort of movement, any sort of any time we're, we're looking at sort of impacting change, you've got to build a platform. You've got to bring people together because the more people, the more people that step up and do what's right, the more people that get on the right side of history, that don't straddle the fence, the faster the boat will move. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Oh my goodness, we could just go on for hours here, Laurie. <laughs> yeah, there's so much to talk about. So, um, oh my goodness. One thing I do want to talk about first of all is that Laurie's going to be at, at Geek Week. I mean, Laurie's going to be at Geek Week for lots of reasons. One, because you're doing a, mm -hmm. a great speech on diversity, and two, because you're doing a couple of other sessions on other things as well. So, if anyone doesn't know about Geek Week, I'm just going to plug Geek Week here for yeah, a plug it. Oh my goodness, so Geek Week is November 11 through 15, oh. um, five days, 134 sessions, 24 hours a day with 85 presenters. My God, it's huge, and it's over $200 if you're a member of PPG or one of our co-hosting organizations. My dog wants to get in on the act because it's almost four o'clock, and that's <laughs> There you go. There she is. So if, you, if, you, if you're a member of PPG or one of the other organizations that we've partnered with, Interdogs, PPG Australia, um, CAM, UK Canine Scent College, APDT Australia, Australia, then go ahead and register and you'll get 12 months access to all those recordings as well. So that's that. Um, what else is going on in PPG world right now? I think pretty much all the focus is on Geek Week right now. And obviously, um, if you are interested in helping us enact the change that we need, then please go ahead and reach out to us because we are looking for committee members. The more people we can get involved, the faster we can move. Um, let me just let my dog out because this is a huge distraction. <laughs> Off you go. Thank you. Now she wants to come straight back in again. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, so if you're interested in helping us and you want to work on the on the committee, either reach out to Laurie or reach out to me. Um, we had our first meeting left this week, and we're going to meet once a month. And when necessary, we'll break into smaller groups to work on some of the more long-term programs. So that's all um, really good stuff. Is there anything you want to add, Laurie? Is anything while you've got this platform? Is there anything you want to say? Anything that you would like to communicate out there to our industry, to our colleagues, to PPG members? Well, you know, I just, you know, for for people who, you know, and I don't know why they would feel threatened by, um, you know, these we're addressing things that are long overdue and it's all for the betterment of all of us, really. It's all for, you know, if, if our goal is to help pets and their people yeah. live better lives, then reaching out to more and, you know, it, it can only be for the better. So there is nothing about any of this that is um, needs to take away from anyone else. Um, yeah. It just it's just it's just expanding. It's expanding 
our world, yeah. um, our dog loving, our pet loving to um, a larger group of people and give them access. That's all, that's really all it is, so. That was so well put, absolutely. And actually I forgot to mention that one of the things that you actually brought up in our call this week is that, and I talk about this, but when we talk about our industry at large, one of the problems in our industry is that we don't even know how many people practice in our industry. We don't even know how many dog mm. trainers there are. So Laurie then threw me a curveball. She says to me on, on our call, how many um, members do we have in the BIPOC sort of community? And I sort of went, I have no idea. I mean, I literally have no idea. Um, so one of the first things we want to do is a survey, sort of find out what, 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 our member, what is our membership and, and to get some feedback from our membership in terms of what, what would you like to see us do? Where do you think the value can be? Um, what do you need from us as an organization? How can we make it more welcoming to people to join us? Um, how can we make our organization truly reflective of the community out there? Um, so yes, yeah, so that was a, a that was a really interesting question you threw me because I'd thrown a similar question to somebody a few months ago and I said, how can we regulate our industry? We don't even know how many people practice within our industry. We don't even know how many dog trainers there are versus behavior consultants versus dog walkers, pet sitters. Because nobody's right, there's no registry anywhere. Um, no, no. So, so we don't even know as a percentage how many of those professionals are positive reinforcement based or shot collar trainers or balance trainers. We just don't have the answers. So I think first and foremost, before we sort of invest some significant resources into developing some long-term programs, we need to get a feel for what our community would like to see and do and, and see and what, what sort of direction they'd like to see us take on. So thank you for that, Laurie. It's always a huge pleasure talking to you. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you have um, stepped up to do this role. I will, um, one thing I will say about Laurie, and I said this to her last week, she's, um, she humbly accepted my compliments, but I, I've watched Laurie for several years on Facebook. She is extremely smart, extremely articulate, um, communicates very transparently and does it very productively and doesn't suffer fools lightly. So I think she has all the, all the fabulous um, personality traits and communication skills to truly be a great chair for this committee so for that I thank you um you're welcome and I look forward to working with you over the next few months yeah how long it takes yeah so great so if anyone has any questions for us or for Laurie she'll be in the Facebook group but don't hound her too much because she seems to spend some <laughs> time on social media <laughs> answering answering questions so Thank you for joining me and I look forward to yeah, it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's a, this was fun. You're welcome. Geek Week for the Love of Science. 134 sessions over five days, 24 hours a day, with 85 amazing globally recognized presenters. Check out the great schedule. Get your geek on and save your spot. Only $200 for members of co-hosting organizations. And anyone who's not a member, you're welcome too. Geekweek.rocks. Come and explore. PPG members get a special discount with Transport Gear. And to access that discount code, you can visit your PPG member area at petprofessionalguild.com. But, special offer available to everybody. 
from now through May 31st using the code PPG special you can access a 20% discount off your order at Transport Gear. So, run, don't walk, www.transportgear.com.